You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome, everybody, or welcome back, and thank you for coming again this morning. Happy Father's Day to those of you, us, who are fathers or grandfathers. I hope you get to spend time with your descendants. I'll get some FaceTime, I hope. And happy, blessed, also Trinity Sunday for believers of all stripes, fathers, mothers, those without issue, doesn't matter if you're a believer, today's Trinity Sunday, in which we remember the gift of the Holy Spirit that completes the Trinity as the beginning of the church. Let's have a word of prayer. Almighty God, who made us and put eternity into our hearts to think about your plan and your purpose. We thank you for Holy Scripture to show us your plan and your purpose. We ask that you would use it to turn our hearts and our minds to you and to contemplate where we fit. These things we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, This is episode three of five of Ecclesiastes for Every Man and Every Woman. And to repeat what I said on the first Sunday that we were here, I don't intend that title to be any kind of a reflection on Ecclesiastes as it's analyzed by great scholars like Professor Genelette, because I've heard him on this topic and it's very easy to understand and to grapple with. I intend it rather to be the view of the reaction to Ecclesiastes from the average parishioner in the pew, which is me, and how a a very run-of-the-mill believer might find both a challenge and some hope and some expectation in this very strange and dark book. I call this session today, What's the Point? And we will talk about the point. But first, I'd like to kind of summarize where we've been before now. In our first session, we looked at the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes and the topic of vanity, which is a really vivid illustration of the Hebrew word which translates roughly as futility, but also as smoke, which is a pretty good metaphor for futility, or at least the futility of all of our striving and all of our achieving in our lives. It's smoke. It's there and then it's gone. And the and the terms that the preacher, this writer of this eccentric book uses grasping at the wind and there's nothing new under the sun it implies a certain weariness with human life but he tells us that we want to examine human life and find out what the purpose of it is and he starts with both wisdom and pleasure and concludes that while they are better than the opposite they are better than the alternative that ultimately they don't lead to fulfillment Last week, in the second session, we talked about the tyranny of time. 
and the fact that there's a purpose for everything under heaven, and yet we find ourselves doing these opposites all through our lives. There's a time to dance and there's a time to mourn. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die, a time to sow in the garden and a time to pluck up what's been planted, a time to heal and a time to kill. These are all rather startling, but the preacher tells us that there is a purpose for everything under heaven, a purpose in the way God has created it. And he has put eternity in our hearts so that we can think about what that purpose is. But the frustration for us is that we are bound in time in a way that he is not. We can't see what he can see. We can't divine his purpose, and so we struggle. And it's the it's part of our dissatisfaction with life that when things seem unfair, we see no answer to that unfairness, but ultimately, God brings everything to judgment. Now in this session, in chapters 5 through 7, the preacher is going to turn his attention to the futility of all of our effort to achieve. I'd like to start with a passage from chapter 5 and read just three verses and then pick up But the first three verses I want to read are 10 through 12 of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. These are three very short vignettes, if you will, three comments on the uh, material success of life, the achievement of money. In verse 10, the point is, one that we all understand instinctively, that to those for whom the acquisition has become the purpose, no amount of the gain is ever enough. We hear in, in, in our political leadership speculation about these titans of, of Silicon Valley and the, the tech wizards who have amassed fortunes that are larger than the gross national product of some European countries, and they ask, what, how much is enough? And the answer is, according to the preacher, it's never enough. Acquisition becomes an end in itself. And in verse 11, this is sort of topical also, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. I think what the, the, the preacher is talking about is how these rich and powerful we see this in sports, we see this in entertainment, have this legion of hangers-on like Remora and Pilotfish, the three social secretaries and the publicists and the, the folks who are existing only to arrange the celebrities' travel and the celebrities' appearances. And you wonder, how much good does that really do the celebrity? Because they're all sucking up their part of the bounty of the celebrity's great 
income. And so all they really do is to show how important these people really are. They increase who eat of the increase. The more they get, the more the hangers-on, the more the pilot fish congregate, and it, it all appears really impressive, but it's, it, it's, it's futile. It's vanity. And look at uh, verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. A man who has to work hard for a living is going to sleep well because he's too tired to do anything else. But what about the rich man who spends all of his time in in riotous living and enjoying the fruits of his great estate? He overeats. He overindulges. He can't sleep, not because he's worried, but because he has he has celebrated to excess. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I'll tell you it's happened to me. But Professor Kidner, whose commentary I've cited before, had a very amusing way of looking at this. He, he pointed to the unprecedented affluence of our modern society and how much money we spend on personal trainers and gym memberships and exercise equipment, all so that we can undo the effects of all of the happy living that we indulge in. The poor man who works for a living has no need of an exercise machine. He does it every day with his back just to earn enough to live. But pass from these three little vignettes to the essence of what I really want to focus on in chapter 5. Picking up at verse 13 and reading through 17. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. This is a dark reflection on the effect of misfortune. It may not be as as terrible a misfortune as to leave a family destitute so that this image of of naked poverty is something that we don't really see very much in our society, especially not somebody who's lost a fortune. They're probably going to be all right. But consider the effect of one who labors and who saves and who works and who invests, and suddenly, perhaps through no fault of his own, it all goes up in smoke Perhaps you've had this experience. Perhaps you had a pretty comfortable nest egg until 2008, and then you saw about a third of it go up in smoke. Perhaps you had a business that was built on a, on a pretty good foundation, but then suddenly the foundation in the business world turned on a dime, and it wasn't. you found yourself 
like the fellow who holds the patent on the Betamax recorder, or perhaps the founder of the blockbuster video chain. This great empire is suddenly worthless. Or imagine perhaps you had a client relationship that was very much um, a source of pride and of prestige, but the client was bought out by a huge conglomerate, not like Freedom Court reporting, of course, Mickey, but the client was bought out and suddenly you don't have that relationship anymore. Or perhaps the client contact that you relied on retired and the replacement suddenly has other priorities. And so something that had been the cornerstone of not only your business and your income, but also some of your prestige is suddenly gone. It may not be as disastrous as being naked through the rest, naked and penniless through the rest of your life, but it can seem like pretty much a calamity at the time that it happens. And you may find yourself remembering Shakespeare's Macbeth at the end of the play. Remember, through this was misfortune of his own making, through perhaps the agency of his of his um, tragic flaw. But Macbeth finds himself at the end of the line. The enemy army is marching on his castle, and he knows that he's about to die, and that report comes that the queen has died. And remember what he says? Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage and then is heard no more is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Maybe you felt that way before. It was a powerful moment. Shakespeare had a window into the human condition and the human soul. But consider a less extreme case than complete ruin and the kind of undone misfortune that that you may find yourself in. Consider a case in chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 and 2, and then I'll skip down to 7 through 12. There's an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires, Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. Down to uh, to verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life? all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen 
after him under the sun. This may seem like the same sort of example that we read in chapter 5, but the preacher is doing something very Jewish here. He's giving us a kind of a parallel example, but with a slight twist. Jesus did it often in his preaching and his teaching, and we see it in the prophets as well. What he's doing is setting up a similar sort of look at life, one who acquires and attains, and this time he's not able to enjoy the fruits of his labor because of some misfortune. There's nothing that happens to his fortune. It doesn't go away. But for some reason or other, he's not able to enjoy it. The preacher doesn't speculate why. There could be a million ways. Suppose suppose the man who's attained the great fortune suddenly gets ill. And so at the time that he was looking to enjoy a comfortable retirement and the ease and the fruit of all of his labor, he spends the rest of his days as an invalid or fighting for his life. Or maybe the retirement that he has looked forward to and worked towards suddenly keeps getting pushed further and further off in the future for reasons having to do with his business or perhaps having to do with his with his family or his other responsibilities. But whatever it is, He doesn't get to enjoy it. He has the satisfaction of knowing that he will leave it to his heirs. But he has no knowledge of how well his heirs will use it. This is vanity. For him, it's up in smoke, even if it is intact and it goes on to his heirs. Because, after all, what happens to it when we're gone? Look again at the at the line, verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. We work on the most fundamental level. We work so that we may eat, so that we may get our strength back up enough to go back to work. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. And yet, in our modern world, we generally are prosperous enough so that we work not only to eat, but also for all of the other benefits that it gives us. We need that. And yet, who knows what it does for us? The soul is not satisfied with the accomplishment of the work. So we think, well, we still are creating a legacy. We are building a legacy that can be used after we are gone to to provide for our families, to provide for our communities, to do good works in the world. And yet, how do we know? I think sometimes about the work of the great foundations that were set up with the enormous fortunes that were created 100 to 150 years ago. Carnegie and Ford and MacArthur and Rockefeller. And I think about these foundations. Sometimes they pop up in the news and there's some enormous grant from the Ford Foundation for some cause that I find myself wondering Would the old man really want his money and his name associated with this? I don't know, but there's one thing we can be sure of, that from the grave, Henry Ford has got no say over it. And so what's done in his name is completely beyond his control, even though it's done with the bounty of what he created. I don't want to grapple too much with uh, current events, but in the last week you've probably watched this 
two weeks really, watch this drama being worked out in Tuscaloosa. I don't know whether Hugh Culverhouse Sr., the late tycoon, uh, would have approved of his good name and his fortune being used by his heirs for this mud fight with the University of Alabama. But I know for one for one thing is sure that Hugh Culverhouse Sr. has nothing at all to do with what's going on now. His legacy, his name, his memory, but not at all his doing, whether he would have approved of it or not approved of it. And this, I think, is what the preacher is getting at, that even when it doesn't go away, we can't appreciate it, we can't enjoy it to the extent that we think that we can. These tycoons in Silicon Valley, there's not enough life in all the world. There's not enough life in the Old Testament for Methuselah to be able to live long enough to consume the corpus of everything that's been built up. And yet, the acquisition goes on because, as he wrote in verse 10, it's never enough. There is no satisfaction in the acquisition. For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, a walking shadow, to cite Shakespeare. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Coffee Colvin reminded me of the singer Peggy Lee and a song that she got famous for, well, she was probably famous for a lot of songs, but one in particular called Is That All There Is? I had completely forgotten about that song, but I remembered after he mentioned it that when I was in high school, my class was made to listen, by, the teacher made us listen to this song and then write an essay about it. And I'm sure my essay wasn't worth reading. I don't have it anymore, I'm glad. But the... <laughs> The words of the song are really poignant. Peggy Lee, sort of like, sort of like the preacher here, looks at life from both sides, both from fortune and misfortune, from happiness and sadness. And the refrain, the refrain of the song keeps coming back. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. And yet, though that sounds like she's declaring this great celebration party, there's no question that there's a sense of mourning in the way she's singing this song, that it's almost desperation. She's not dancing to celebrate. She's dancing to keep her mind off of the disappointment that life doesn't offer more than it does. She's not breaking out the booze to have a party. She's breaking it out to dull the ache of disappointment at how unfulfilling life really is. Some of you remember one of Jack Nicholson's most uh, famous roles, and I'm not talking about Colonel Jessup and You Can't Handle the Truth. I'm talking about a movie a few years before that called As Good As It Gets. You might remember he was this celebrated novelist. He wrote romance, his character wrote romance novels for women, and he was hugely successful, best-selling author, yet he was miserable. He didn't like women. He didn't like anybody. He was vicious and mean-spirited to his neighbors. He was terribly neurotic. 
he saw a therapist every day, and at the, it, eventually it kind of works out. He sort of finds a little bit of happiness among some of his neighbors, but at the height of the, of the movie, he's in his therapist's office, and he looks around and he says, what if this is all there is? What if this is as good as it gets? Well, there's a depressing thought. It's kind of the same thought that Peggy Lee had. But the answer to that question, consider the words of my favorite secular saint, C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote this in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's the answer. Jack Nicholson, this is not as good as it gets. Peggy Lee, there is more than just this. And I believe that that's also the message that the preacher, Kohelet, is laying out for us here. He said, God has put eternity in our minds, in our hearts. He has created us in a way that we seek for what we cannot know. I don't think he would have put it there if he intended us to be like barnyard animals or like my golden retriever that I cited last week who lives totally in the moment and even right now is probably stretched out on the hearth enjoying the cool and taking a nap until this afternoon when we get back and he's happy again. I think God put it there for a reason. We just can't see it. And this is what the preacher is getting Two, the, the cause of our unhappiness, the cause of our unfulfillment is we cannot see the purpose for what we are doing. We find ourselves suddenly stepping back from all of our striving and wondering, why? What's the point? Well, consider some really good advice, the value of practical wisdom that we get from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to read part of it. It's a long chapter and we can't grapple with everything in it. But I'm going to read verses 4 through 6 and then skip down to read 13 and 14. You're welcome to follow along. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Well, this sounds dark, but it's really good advice. Looking back at verse 14, what we could really take from that is that God has, has ordained that both adversity and prosperity will be lived out alongside one another in human life. This is not to say that God wants us to be miserable. 
or that he wants us to suffer or that he gives us adversity out of some sort of some sort of glee no this is the natural consequences of the world that he's created we live in this world with with free will with our own agency and being humans being fallen humans our agency is messy and so we strive and we wish and we hope and we try to do good but we don't always do good we try to do well but often we come to grief we experience adversity as well as prosperity he's ordained that we would be made in his image and being made in his image we have that ability to think morally and to act morally but also having the agency to do the opposite and so the result not surprisingly is the mess that we find ourselves in but consider these wise words of the preacher he compares wisdom with mourning he compares foolishness with mirth it's not the other way around the gospel message is exactly what he's saying here it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Isn't that true? Wouldn't you rather, when you really think about it, hear the naked truth than some idle flattery from some fool? And listen to the, 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 the beautiful image that he gives us. Beautiful. I mean, I think it's really ironic. The crackling of thorns under a pot is like the laughter of a fool. Thorn branches are, you know, they, they're, they're narrow. They burn hot and they burn fast and they burn loud, but they don't generate a lot of heat. They're not useful for anything to do with the pot. The crackling of the, uh, of the thorns is like the laughter of the fool. It's not useful for anything. It's mirth, but that's all it is. Wouldn't we rather hear the truth? Wouldn't we rather have the self-knowledge, the knowledge of where we fit, than to be idly flattered? Consider the work of God. Verse 13. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? He's made the universe, the creation, as it is. We can dispute with him, like Job did, about why we wind up where we do. But ultimately, God's answer to that is, I made it the way I made it. I'm the potter, and you were the clay. I once read about a televangelist, or maybe it was not a televangelist, but some gospel preacher who was popular in culture, who supposedly was telling his flock that the purpose of the gospel was for us to feel good about ourselves. Maybe he was flattering them so they would buy him a new Learjet. Or maybe he was just, that was his understanding of the gospel. But there couldn't be anything more wrong with that. The purpose of the gospel is not for us to feel good about ourselves. It's for us to see ourselves as we really are and to realize what's been done for us anyway. Consider the words of our Lord 
when he was speaking to a crowd. I'm in Luke chapter 12, beginning at the 16th verse. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have made you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, the lesson of the parable is inescapable, that all of the worldly riches that we could ever aspire to are worthless if we don't have a right relationship with God. And if we have a right relationship with God, then all the misfortune that we can encounter is nothing. The sufferings of this world are as nothing to what our right relationship with God will eventually bring to pass. So I end with the point that we ended in our first session, the words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. Lay up, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of our Lord. This is the lesson of the preacher. He reveals it only in little bitty bites. In the last session, we'll see it more clearly. Next week, we'll consider the subject dust to dust. Thank you all for coming, and I look forward to seeing you. Thank you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.